Revelation 19, I, I did, um, we joke about when we, when we sat down, Pastor Paul and I sat down and we kind of split up who's going to preach what. Um, you know, he's been, over the last couple of weeks, if you kind of go back and look at the, the context, you know, the, the judgment of Babylon and, and this vile prostitute and a beast and like, and then I'm going to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb today. So, uh, and and also that that kind of that final battle. So I, I did draw the good straw. Um, I assume it has something to do with the nearness that I walk with God. Exactly. I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. That's what I'm going to roll with right now, though. So now this this is a. This is a uh, this is a very very good chapter. This like all of the stuff that we've been that we've been walking through, specifically as it relates to that time of tribulation and and um, and and how the saints endure throughout that process. That's probably been the greatest takeaway from for me uh, as we've walked through the last five or six chapters. Specifically, um, my big takeaway is how how do the saints endure during that? Like when we talk about. How do you come out of that? How do, what does it look like to get through to the other side? Um, and then as we get into chapter 19 and talk about, um, first of all, this incredible song, like this song just breaks out in the heavens. It's a, a song of victory. Then we talk about the, the marriage that actually happens and then that, um, that final battle. So that's where we're going to be. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll, we'll go back and... and um, pick it apart a little bit. So uh, beginning of verse 1, chapter 19, it says, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her whoring and, in, and has avenged the blood of his servants caused by her hand. And a second time they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and all who fear him, both the great, both the small and the great. Verse 6, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, or like the rumbling of powerful thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for Adonai reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She, has, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel tells me, Write, how fortunate are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. He also tells me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet and worshiped him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am only a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy." Verse 11, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one riding on it called Faithful and True. And he judged, he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire and many royal crowns are on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and, is, and the name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. For his mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may, he may strike down the nations. And he shall rule them with an iron rod. And he treads the winepress of furious wrath of Elohim. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw a single angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he cried out to all the birds flying high in the sky, Come, gather for the great banquet of God, to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the generals and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those riding on them, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
Also I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the one who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs before him by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, as well as those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the one riding on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. We pray that God would honor the reading of his word this morning. Amen. Okay, so, um, so a couple of things that come out of, of the first section. So there's kind of three different parts to this text that, that we're going we're gonna to take a look at. The, the first part of it is a, it's a song that is being sung by the multitudes. Where have we seen the multitudes before? We've kind of seen this scene before, remember? Back at the very beginning of the book, um, when John was first kind of translated into that place where he saw multitudes and multitudes of people, and they were surrounding a throne, and at the throne were these four living creatures and the 24 elders. They were all surrounding, and they were giving their worship to the one who was seated on the throne that we know to be Yahweh. So this song is breaking out, and it, verse, uh, chapter 19 starts out saying, after these things. So after what things? Well, after the things that we just got through coming out of last week with this, this ultimate judgment that was coming to Babylon. Uh, and so as he judged Babylon and, um, and the fallout of that, then we slide into 19 and, and this song. Um, so what I think is really important here in verse, uh, in verse 2, kind of made a note about this, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her whoring, her whoring and has avenged the blood of his servants caused by her hand. Now, what I think is really significant that we draw out of that is that he's not just making war. This is not just making war in an attempt to show I'm bigger and more powerful than you. Because he could do that. If he chose to do that, he could do that. But that's not the context of what this is saying. It's saying that he is making judgments. That, those, are, those are different things. Like going to make war to show that I'm bigger and more powerful than you is one thing. To make judgments is a completely different thing. And the reason it's different is because he's the one that's worthy of making those judgments. He's the one that's capable of looking at injustice and making it right. And that's what he's doing here. It's, it's not a focus on just simply being able to overpower you, but it's looking at and executing justice. He is the great judge. So this song that's being sung is being sung about his ability to make right the things that have been made wrong in the past. So, and then as we slide down, um, I, I really want to spend, I want to spend the bulk of our time here kind of talking about the wedding. Uh, the, the first part is just, it's this song. I don't, I don't have a lot of explanation to give you about the song. It's similar to other songs that we've heard sung throughout this book up to this point. They are singing, they are shouting, they are praising and rejoicing on the fact that the one who's capable of setting, of making the judgments and setting things right is doing so. So we praise him for that. Amen. So then uh, as we get down to um, verse 6, it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. So again, he's hearing the multitude of people, like the roar of rushing waters or like the rumbling of powerful thunder saying, Hallelujah. Now, this is pretty significant. In the first six verses of chapter 19, we see the word hallelujah repeated four times. Okay. Now, the reason why I found that to be really significant here is it's the only four times in the entire New Testament that hallelujah is used. I thought that that was really interesting because there's a lot of times when people are giving their praise to God, but which is what that means. That's what the word literally translates as is to praise Yahweh. That's, that's what it means. It's the only four times in the entire New Testament that, those, that that word is used. So, um, 
when we talk about the wedding of the Lamb, this is something that for me, um, over the course of this study in Revelation, has come, um, I just, I love the imagery of it, like just to think about that day and to think about that moment. But then when you see how prophecy laid this out and how, and how Yahweh executed all of these things to come about to this. This is like, this is almost like the culmination of all things. So Pastor Paul has talked to us about um, when, when, when the nation of Israel, when the children of Israel decided to rebel against Yahweh, and, and he, he then wrote that certificate of divorce to them. He, and so he, he divorced that nation. He, he, he exiled them. He pushed them away. And so because of his law that he put into place, he couldn't remarry them apart from what? What, what gives him the ability to remarry his people? Death does. And, and ultimately what we know is Jesus gave him the ability to, to remarry, to, to take on, take his people back. So um, Pastor Paul alluded to this, I, I believe it was last week he kind of referenced this, but I, I want to read it to you from the book of Hosea. Um, I love this text. I, I love this passage. Um, Hosea was a prophet of God. Uh, who had a very, very challenging calling on his life. He was a prophet of God who was told by God that you're going to go marry a temple prostitute. And the reason that he wanted him to do that is his life was going to become an example to the nations to say, this is how much I love you. Because listen, she is going to be unfaithful to you. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this up front. You're going to marry the temple prostitute and she is going to be unfaithful to you in the same way that my people are constantly unfaithful to me. And then this text in Hosea chapter 2 is just like it's poetic to a certain extent, but it is just... It's beautiful. I'm going to share it with you. I don't know that I got all of the all of the text. I want to go down to verse 22. I think I might have stopped short in what I put in, but but if you've got your scripture in front of you, you can turn there. Hosea chapter two. I'm going to start in verse 16, and it says this. So then, I myself will entice her. I will bring her into the wilderness, and speak to her heart. I will give her back her vineyards from there and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. She will respond there as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of the land of Egypt. In that day, it is a declaration of Adonai, you will proclaim my husband and never again call me my Baal. You remember that whole story about when, like, the sons of Israel, they, they went and married the daughters, and then they began to worship a false god, and his name was Baal. And he's saying that on this day that you're going to proclaim, you're my husband, and never again call me my Baal. So, like, I just want you to think, like, I'm going to stop here because I want you to, I want you to live in this moment for a minute. Those of you who are married, that you've, you've, you've experienced a relationship at that level, that the one that you love the most in the world calls you by the name of someone else that she loves maybe more than you. Like it's one thing, and we can, we can think about, um, we can think about kind of a scenario where you're having a conversation with your spouse, and over the course of the conversation, you say the name of one of your ex-girlfriends. So, like, I, I just heard a grunt. Like, so, like, that's, everybody kind of, you, you kind of get that. Like, you're, you're having the conversation, you're like, but I don't want to say anybody's name right now. <laughs> and like, um, 
I almost got myself right into some trouble right there. But like, say, but like if I was talking to Susan, I said the name Sonia right in the middle of that. And, and like, but my name, that, that's not my name. That's not who I am. Like you can have, if we just like put ourselves in this moment to think about how we would feel. I am convinced more than ever that all of this stuff, like the things that we've been looking at in depth, it's about his name. He is about his name. His name is what's important to him. There is something very, very, very powerful and meaningful about his name. It's the reason why, like, we even did it this morning, like, where we will try to change some of the lyrics of songs that we're very, very comfortable in singing to put the name Yeshua in it. That I, that, because that's actually his name. That's, that's the name of our Christ. His name is Yeshua. Jesus is a Greek translation of his actual name. Does that make sense? Like the what we have translated. That we would, that we would think about the fact that his name is Yahovah. That God or Lord is a title, like we've talked about this a bunch. His name is important. And, and so, like, I think, that, I think that for us, maybe, it's just, it, it's just like what we know. Like, we're just going to say what we know. This is what we've always been taught. But then when you learn something else, then maybe we need to make an adjustment in the way we approach him if we're going to pray in his name, maybe we should actually pray in his name. And I still do it, like, because I get very routine in, in how I pray. And so, like I'll say, in Jesus' name we pray. Well, maybe that's not the name I need to be praying in. Maybe I'm praying in the wrong name. This is just kind of one of those things that's come up in my head recently. His name is important. And what he said is, there's going to be a time when I'm going to draw her out into the wilderness. This is like, if we put this into Hosea's life, Hosea's going to, he's going to get his bride and he's going to take her away from all of the distractions of life. He's going to get her away from where she does her work and where she does business. He's going to get her out into the wilderness. Does this sound like something that Yahweh has done before? Does it sound like something he's going to do again? So, I'm going to draw her out into the wilderness and, and I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to show her that I love her more than anything else in the world. And she's going to respond to that. It is so, I, you know, we t- when we talk about the Exodus and we talk about God drawing his people out of Egypt, and making a way for them, and trying to get them into his promised land, but then they had to spend some time wandering around in that wilderness area. And we talk about the fact that, yes, Yahweh had to get his people out of Egypt, but the other thing that had to happen is he had to get Egypt out of his people. Remember we talk about that? That's what is happening in Hosea here as well. He's going to draw her out into the wilderness and pursue her. And then she's going to respond. She's going to say, you're my husband. And then she's not going to call him Baal anymore. This is so, like, not only is this significant, it's beautiful. This is beautiful literature. I'm going to call you my husband. I'm never going to call you Baal ever again. Then I will remove the name of Baal out of her mouth, no longer to be mentioned by their name. In that day, I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with flying creatures in the sky and the creeping things on the ground. I will break into pieces the bow and sword and warfare from the land, and I will cause them to lie down securely." He is making peace. He he is making things right. This is the same thing that we saw right at the beginning of Revelation 19 where they're rejoicing because the one who is the judge is now making judgments and making things right. That's what he's doing in Hosea right here also. 
He's making things right. Verse 21, then I will betroth to you, I will, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me with a righteous justice, covenant, loyalty, and compassion. I will betroth you to me with faithfulness, and you will know Adonai. That is, that is incredible. To, to know the backstory of Hosea, to know I'm going to use your life as an object lesson. You are my prophet, and this is what I'm going to do with your life. And, and then to know that it comes all the way full circle back to this, that is a perfect picture of Yahweh pursuing his people and drawing them back to himself and then ultimately remarrying them. And this scene in Revelation 19 is it's the culmination of all of those things. It's all coming together at this point in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6, and that's where we are. So now, where I got, because I have a tendency to kind of do this, where I get bogged down when I'm studying, we get to this point, and I read Hosea, and I see him like pursuing and chasing after and bringing his people to himself. I got to this point and I said, so who will be there? Because I think that's what's important here. Who's going to be at this marriage? Susan talked with the kids about, like, you don't get to go to a wedding unless you were invited. Like, that's, that's pretty important. Like, outside of that, you're what they call a wedding crasher. Like, and those people, like, that if you're found out to be a wedding crasher, then, you know, like, you, you cause problems there. So, like, you don't want to be that guy that's just, like, showing up. Hey, I heard there was something going on over here. So, but you need an invitation. When you have an invitation, then you walk in like, like you may go to a place and there's like a place setting for you. It has your name on it and your family's name. And that's where you're to set. And it's very elaborate. And it's such a significant moment in time. So that invitation is really, really important. And in verse 9, it says that the angel spoke to him again and said, How fortunate are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And that's where I got stuck. How fortunate are those who have this invitation to this, this event that has been planned and has been orchestrated and all of these things have been done to get to this moment in time. And this angel speaks up and says, how fortunate, how blessed are those who have an invitation so then my question was, who's invited? Who's supposed to be here? And that's where I got stuck. So, so when we get to the point where I'm running out of time and I say, then there was this big battle that honestly is pretty anticlimactic. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you've read it, it gets down there and the horse shows up and he's on it and he's got a tattoo on his thigh and the sword coming out of his mouth, and then literally nothing happens. He takes them captive and throws them in the fire. That's it. I mean, that's like, there's horses with saints and, and warriors behind him, and then the, the beast and the false prophet are there, and they're like, ready, and like he speaks to them, and they disintegrate. Like, you know that it, the scriptures say that he, he literally holds the world together by the breath of his mouth. Like, what we know about physical matter, things that make us up, things that make the trees up, and, and like all the components that go into holding this building up, if you... Like if you did any studying into like what makes matter 
its thing, he holds that stuff together with the breath of his mouth. So when the battle comes, when the war comes, this this end of days type thing that people have made movies about, he shows up and speaks and it's over. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire like he promised and the rest are wiped out by the sword that comes out of his mouth that is the word of God. Gone. It's over. So that's the last half of this chapter. We good there? I want to I know who's going to be here. Who got this invitation? And I'm, I'm going to read you a few different things in the book of Romans and then try to, try to tie it together if at all possible, okay? So uh, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 9 a couple of different things and then in Romans chapter 11. I'm just going to read these texts to you and then we're going to see if we can make some sense of something that's been a little bit confusing to me in the past. Okay, are we good? Okay, so in Romans chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 6. It says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, but not all those who are descendants from Israel are Israel. That's important. Not all of those who are descendants from Israel are Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. Rather, your seed shall be called through Isaac. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. Rather, the children of the promise are counted as seeds. Okay. So now jump over, maybe just a column. It's a column in my Bible. To to, uh, verse 25. Okay, so Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 25, it says this, And as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. I love this. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not loved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. This is good news. This is the gospel, okay? Isaiah, uh, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only the remnant shall be saved. For Adonai will carry out his words upon the earth, bringing it to an end and finishing quickly. That's what we just talked about at the end of chapter 19 and 29. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless Adonai had left us seed, we should become like Sodom and resemble Gomorrah. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, that is, a righteousness of faith. But Israel, who pursued a Torah of righteousness, did not reach the Torah. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it was, as it were from works. The st- they stumbled over the stone of stumbling, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Hold on to those two texts. Now jump to chapter 11. Over in chapter 11, uh, let's start in verse 17. It says, But if some of the branches were broken off of you, off and you being a wild olive, were, grant, were grafted in among them and became a partaker of the root of the olive tree with its richness. 
do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, it is not you who supports a root, but the root supports you. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet is the one that talked about Israel as though it was this, this wild green olive tree. Okay, so that's kind of a little bit of a reference point here. Now, jump over in chapter 11, jump over to verse 25. It says, For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be ignorant of this mercy, lest you be wise in your own eyes, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer shall come out of Zion. He shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. Now, I wanted to share those, those references with you as we think about who's invited. Um, Paul teaches this idea of you and I are what we would call, the majority of us in here, I would say, maybe all of us in here, I would say are what we would call Gentiles. Now, I want to stop using the word Gentiles because the word Gentile means, do you know? It means unbeliever. So now people want to separate two groups of people in the scriptures. They want to talk about Jews and Gentiles. That's okay when you use the term Gentile to talk about an unbeliever. But what Paul is making a very, very clear case for here is that even those who are of Israel are not all of Israel. Because those are people who believe in the promises of God. And then Paul talks about when Jeremiah paints a picture of this, this, this green olive tree, and then he talks about those that are cut off from the olive tree. But then it, here in Paul, who's referencing Jeremiah, talks about branches that are picked up and grafted into the olive tree. Now, one of the things that I learned this week it, that blew my mind, the process of taking a wild shoot connecting it to a, a, a root or a tree, something that's established, wrapping it on, and when that wild shoot connects, when it bonds to the new tree, you know what that technical term is called? Zion. What? So when you read... When you read in the scriptures, behold, I, I lay in Zion a stumbling block. Like that, that term, that, the technical term for picking up a wild shoot, connecting it to something that's established, wrapping it on when that bonds, when it holds, when the graft is done, it's known as Zion. Like it just mind blown all over the place. And when he says, not everyone that's of Israel are all Israel. Not all of them are, but those who are, those who believe in the promises of God. So now take that idea of Israel and Gentiles. Now take the understanding that a Gentile is a non-believer and now look at what to me has been a very confusing verse for a long time when it says in 11, uh, Romans 11, chapter, uh, verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Why does it say all Israel will be saved? Does it, does it mean that literally if you are Israeli, if, if you are Jewish by birth, that you're going to be saved? 
There's nothing that supports that in the context of scriptures. But if you look at the fact that Israel is the, it's the root and that everything else is grafted into the root, then guess what? All of Israel is saved. Does that make sense? Do we make sense of this? That kind of, for me at least, this has been confusing because I've always operated under a biblical understanding that it requires a faith in Yeshua, a saving faith. That's, that's what saves. You can't be saved just like, I'm not gonna walk into a family of Christians and therefore I'm a Christian. That's not how it works. You have to be adopted in. Ultimately, what has to happen, and this is what I miss. Like I've told you guys before that I, I was adopted when I was 21 years old. It's not, not, not everybody has that story, but I was adopted by my stepdad right before I married my wife because I wanted to give his name to my family just as, as a way to honor him. That's, that was something I wanted to do. I was James Zachary Shastella for the first almost 21 years of my life. So I became James Zachary Snow before I got married because that was the name I wanted to give to my family because names matter, like it, it matters. Just like when he said, no longer will the name Baal be on your lips, but you're gonna call me husband. So names matter. So I was adopted. Now, during that process, I studied because I wanted to like really know, I'd heard about this theology or this doctrine of adoption, but I wanted to know like, what does the scripture say about us being adopted into this family? So I spent a lot of time studying the doctrine of adoption. What does it mean to be adopted into his family? What I completely missed in that process was this idea of being grafted in. Like adopted children, this is beautiful too, but adopted children have full rights as though they were legitimate children of that, that family unit. Meaning you're not a second class citizen. You're not, you're, you're not here like we felt bad for you so we brought you in to have a meal with us. That's, that's not what adoption is. Adoption is as though you were legitimately born into that family. There is no difference at all. And, and like, this is truly, truly significant when you start studying the legal ramifications of being an adopted child. And that's what we did. My, my stepdad, took, we went through a full adoption process when I was almost 20, well, I was 21 years old. It was right before I turned 22. We went through a full adoption process. I could have gone down to the courthouse and had my name changed, right? I'm a grown-up. You, you just go down there and you say, I wanna be this person. And they, you pay some money and they give you the documentation you need to go get a new social security card and get your driver's license and all that stuff. But that's not what my dad wanted. He wanted to adopt me. And I can tell you, like I've told this story before, but we didn't have much going up. My dad did not have the money to pay for an adoption process, but it was that important to him that we do that. Now, when you start studying the legal side of things with adoption, it's, it's hugely significant because Anything, and that's where it gets into the teaching on being, being heirs of Yahweh and co-heirs with Yeshua. To be a co-heir with Yeshua, you know what that means? It means you get what he got. You know what he got? Resurrected. You know what we get? Resurrected. Amen. That... that that was earth moving for me when I, when I really understood. What, so what are we talking about when you say that you're co-heirs, therefore you get what he got? What did he get? He got glorified. He got resurrected. He got brought back to life. And therefore we get that as well. That's, that's huge. But even during that process, I didn't spend, I, I didn't understand this idea of the grafting. But that may be more significant even than my understanding of adoption now. Because once that's, that graft is done, it's not just like bringing somebody into your family, but like things start growing together. It, it gets to the point where you can't 
figure out where one ends and the other begins. That's the process of grafting. That's what happened to those who were Gentile by birth, but believed in the promises of God. And what he said was like Gentiles gained a righteousness that they didn't have. Why? Because of faith. They gained a righteousness they did not have because of faith. But then there are those who are natural born into this that they try to achieve righteousness by Torah. I mean, they tried to do things to get this righteousness. The problem is what Paul said here is they didn't understand Torah. That, Torah is put into place. as teaching and instructions for us are put into place not to make God love us more. But in doing them, we will learn to love him more. That's, that's, response, that's proper response to Torah. Which, by the way, as we repeat over and over again, doesn't mean law, but means teachings and instructions. So they try to achieve a righteousness by doing Torah. People do this all the time. Like, I don't want us to turn up our nose and say, well, that was foolish. People do this all the time. We, we do things all the time to try to gain God's favor by the things that we do. But what he said is righteousness, you can't do it that way. And he also talks about branches being cut off. But even branches that are cut off can be grafted back in. So when he talks about in 11, it talks about that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That I I believe we're going to get to a place where because of his great love for humanity, for his people, and as he draws people to himself, that this hardening will start going away. And I believe that the more we exercise a faith that is based off of the scriptures, the more the hardening will go away. And ultimately, we're going to come to a time and a place based off of the scriptures that we've been studying that collectively as a people, God's people, that we're going to have to be willing to endure some things for the sake of his name. And what I believe is going to happen is the more we endure for the sake of his name, the more this hardening goes away. Because Israel will start, they will start noticing that those people who love Yeshua and call him Messiah are also willing to suffer for his name. And I think that that, I think that causes that hardening to let up a little bit. Like you don't, you may not realize how significant your life is and the way you live your life and the way you execute your faith, how that may be part of the softening that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 11. So who is getting the invitation? That's... That's where I got hung up. According to Paul's teaching, those who get the invitation are his people. All of his people. Now, that seems very, very oversimplified to me based off of what I studied this week. Because Ultimately, I probably could have started at that point and said, well, his people get an invitation to this wedding. I probably could have started there and just satisfied it. But it's very important for us to understand who his people are. 
Because in the same way that not all of Israel is really Israel, not everyone who says that they're his are really his. Not everyone in the church who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Like, not everyone who has said a sinner's prayer. So if I could maybe put it in a term that some of us who have been in church for any amount of time will grab a hold of. Just because you said a sinner's prayer, just because you were baptized, just because you used to be really good at the five-point system. Do y'all remember that? The thing on the offering envelopes where they had the five boxes that you could check and like the more you check the boxes, the more points you got in your Sunday school registry thing and then maybe you got a prize at the end of the quarter. Just me. (laughs) Just because you did those things and you were really, really good at church doesn't mean you're getting an invitation to the wedding. And this is where it gets really hard. And that's why I wanted to do the work of finding out who's getting the invitation. Who, when we say his people, who are we talking about? It, there, there is going to come a time, and I don't know when it's going to be, but there's going to come a time when there will not be another opportunity This, this callousness that we have grown accustomed to, this thing that we've decided that we have the ability to do, to kind of silence the Holy Spirit just enough to be able to get through and do the next thing that we needed to do, there's going to come a time when if what you claimed for so long is not real, That's what's going to bubble to the surface. What John says in in Revelation is signs and wonders are going to be performed and deception is going to be levied at the point that if, if it's even possible, the elect will be deceived. If that's possible. So, If you're not, like if all of this is a game for you, I don't know that you stand a chance once somebody who is far more eloquent than me and and this guy that teaches better than this guy, when that guy takes a platform and starts performing miracles in front of your eyes, I don't know that you stand a chance of not falling into that. Apart from the truth of this word and standing on it and it alone, we don't stand a chance. But because of this word, because of the spirit that indwells his people, we can stand confidently and say, bring it on. You can can do whatever you want to. You can kill me. Because for me, like Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? And like, it's gotten to the point where I almost feel desperate about it. I almost feel a sense of desperation to just go and tell people, you just need to understand. Your ability to play church is not going to cut it. It's not, because you don't stand a chance against this. But today, today, he, he may be calling you to this level of truth today. Saying, stop, 
Just stop playing games because you need a lot more than just an ability to do Americanized church. You're going to need more than that. You're going to need me. And as Matt prayed this morning, like, we are, we're just here just asking, like, we just need your help. We, we recognize, we, we see how frail we are. We see how fallen, we see how weak, and we just desperately need your help. And I'm telling you that as the days go, the more and more and more and more, we're just going to need him. He, in the way that he brought his people out of Egypt and, and gave them a period of time where they learned to trust and rely on him and him alone for everything, I think that that's what this is what the scripture, what we've been studying over the last however many weeks, I think that's what it's teaching. When we go back and look at those seven letters to those seven churches in the beginning, you know what he kept saying over and over and over and over again? To those who endure, I'm going to grant for them, blah, 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 blah. To those who endure, I'm going to give them That's that process of us just saying, I'm, I'm going to press into you. I'm going to press into you. I'm going to rely on you. I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to trust you. The one who's true and faithful, I'm going to trust you. We don't know how to trust God around here. I mean, let's just lay this out pretty plainly. We are not conditioned for that level of endurance. We're not conditioned for it. That, that there was a time when, when Yahuwah's people were in a wilderness area with literally nothing to eat or drink. And the only thing that they had was a trust that he would take care of them. You and I are not conditioned for that level of trust. Like we can say, it, it's like the example that I've given of the sun coming up. Like I have faith that tomorrow the sun's going to come up. Because the truth is, if it doesn't, what am I going to do about it? Like it's almost dumb faith because the reality is, if it, I'm going to have to trust that it's going to come up because if it doesn't, what am I going to do? I'm going to lay down in the fetal position and get real cold until I die. And, and I almost feel, I, I want to be careful with this, but I almost feel the same way about salvation when salvation for you is only about not going to hell. Because the truth is, like, that's easy. Talk to individual people. Talk, talk, to, talk to little people. Talk to your children. Hey, hey, kids, you want to go to hell? Or you want to go to heaven with mommy and daddy? Oh, I want to go to heaven with you guys. That other place sounds awful. Okay, good. This is what you do. Listen, I, I don't want to talk any of, you, any of you out of like whatever it is that you hold on to, but that ain't saving faith, guys. That's what I'm talking about, like the, the analogy with the sun. If we're just talking about not going to hell, it's easy to trust him and say, I don't want to go to hell. Because the bottom line is, at the end of it all, what are you going to do if that wasn't real anyway? But the faith that we're talking about here is pressing into him and trusting him for literally the next breath that you take that there may come a time when you have to trust and rely on him and know that he's the faithful one and the true one and that he's good because your kids are hungry and they haven't eaten in a couple of days. That's a different level of trust. And begging him and 
asking him for his grace and his mercy on your life and on the life of your family. That's a a completely different level of faith. Paul said that the Gentiles stopped being Gentiles because of their faith. At that point, they were no longer Gentiles because they were grafted in because of their faith. But then he also said that there's another group of people who are the ones that I called out. I called them by name and said, I'm going to do all of this stuff through this nation. And he's saying, despite what I've done, they are still not my people Because they try to do Torah. Not because they they want to try to live it and apply it in a faithful way, but they just want to do the actions of it. And in doing the actions of it, I must be good. That, That is no different. And so I don't want you to like think I'm better than somebody else, but that attempt is no different than trying to say a prayer in a certain way and thinking that was good enough. Saying a prayer in a certain way or being baptized or checking the boxes or whatever it is in our system that we have here is no different than the one who wanted to achieve the righteousness by doing Torah. It's not different. And the thing is, neither one of them are the people of God. So I wanted to know, like, Blessed are those who receive the invitation. That's where I got stuck. I want to know who are those people? Who are the ones that received the invitation? And the answer is, in short and in long, it's his people. Those are the ones that receive the invitation. But listen, we've got to stop assuming that just because we're in a church where the gospel is preached, we got to stop making the assumption that we're just his people because that's where we are. We become his people when we respond in faith to Yeshua's calling to lay down our life and pick up his cross. And, and I hope that this thought of this invitation that is, if you just go off the context of Scripture as a whole, um, there's not a ton of these invitations that are sent out. Because... In Matthew, it says that narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and only a few people find it. But wide is the path that leads to death and destruction, and many, many, many people find that. Like, I want us to become a little bit desperate for this, for this cause. Pastor Paul has said a few times over the last couple of months, even as we've been studying this, that like to, to anticipate his coming, um, to long for his coming, it's one thing. And it's, it's like, I, I get that and I understand that. But at the same time, the more he tarries, the more time we have to repent, to to. to press into him and to to be sanctified, to be set apart. So like, his tearing is for our good because it does give us that time to repent and to, to try today to be more like him and then tomorrow to try to be more like him than I was the day before. 
But then the other thing that his tearing does is he says that there's going to be a softening. Like the hardening is because like it hasn't all come to fruition. It hasn't all come together. But I think the more we as a people try to execute life based off of the scriptures, then the more desperate we will become for sharing this hope with a world that's dying around us. Uh, I want to take it as a personal challenge, a personal responsibility for me to go hand deliver some invitations to people. Like it's, it's one thing to throw those invitations in the mail or like Susan said, just get on the balcony or get up in a helicopter and just shovel a bunch of invitations out. But that's not what people do. But how much does it mean to have somebody walk up to you and he's like, I really want you to be at this thing with me. I've got this thing coming up and I want you to be there. I want to take it as a personal challenge and a responsibility of of my own to be distributing some invitations to this event. Um, We talked a little bit about the final battle. Um, I want you to be there. I want, I want us as a, as, a, as a called out body and assembly of people here for a purpose to be about this work, to, to live on purpose, to, to wake up every day knowing that you've been called into a specific place for a specific purpose. Because when we find that, one, life is not nearly as boring as we want to make it out to be. Because you recognize that God put you there for that purpose. Life gets really exciting all of a sudden. But also because I think the time, like time is ticking, guys. We, we don't have just like, whether or not this happens in my life, or my children's life, if, if, I, if I don't take this in and then go teach it to those two boys, then they're not going to be looking for it either. And then if they don't take it at a level to where they can teach it to their children, then it gets further and further and further pushed away. So this is not even about whether or not it happens in my lifetime. Now, I want to own the Shema. Like, teach this stuff to your children. Talk about it when you sit and when you walk along the way. Put it on the post of your house. Now, I, want, I want this to be like our, our battle cries of family. That we need to be about this. If this is like the culmination of all of these things, all of this history that we've been studying from, from the Exodus on and even before, that it all comes down to this thing, this wedding that's going to happen, then I, I want to I live in such a way that this matters to me. And I hope, that, I hope that you will too. And there's going to be a battle. It's going to be very, very, very quick. <laughs> I said it's kind of anticlimactic. I don't really think it's going to be that when we see it. Reading it leaves a little to be desired. But it's almost like a lot of the things, as, as kind of we think back off on John's writings through this, when he talks about the scenes in heaven, it seems like they're downplayed. And I think it's because, like, how do you describe it? How, 
How do you put into words the things that he actually saw? So while it may seem like it's being downplayed or it's like, I mean, I'm assuming that this is a pretty big moment in time when Yeshua rides out on a horse and, and that the angels, the, the army, whether those be angels or saints, there's still some debate on who that is back there, but they're there. And then the beast and the false prophet, and they form their army of those who took the mark of the beast. And they come together at that moment and that, that place in time and that we're there because we've already been assembled for this, this banquet. So we're there. I don't think that's going to be, I don't think that's going to be a small deal. And this, uh, this is another piece of this that kind of, um, well, I didn't know this before. So um, when it gets to the point where he calls out the birds, all the things that are flying around in the sky, this is in verse 17, then I saw a single angel standing in the sun, the loud voice he cries out to all the birds flying high in the sky, come gather for the great banquet of God. Some may say supper of God, depending on what your translation is that you have in front of you. So when we talk about the marriage supper, you've probably heard that language used before. It, it seems, at least from the text, that the marriage supper is the birds going and feasting on the flesh of the ones that Yeshua wipes out. I, in my head, it's always been like, hey, we're going to sit down at this banquet table and like, there's probably going to be fried chicken there, I'm assuming. And probably banana pudding. Like It's all going to be laid out right there. And, and this is like the marriage supper because like, there's that big meal that you have at a wedding. What this says is the great banquet of God, the great supper of God, is this angel calling the flying creatures over to go feast on the flesh of those that Yeshua just wiped out. His name is important. This cause, like this is, this is why you were put on the earth. Doesn't have to be any questions about, well, why am I here? This is it. This is what it's about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for you. I knew that we would kind of fly through that last part, but um, I did want us to spend time talking about who was gonna be there because that's where I got stuck. Yes, it's his people, but who are his people? 